Welcome to the Hope on the Hard Road podcast, where you and your family can find community, find encouragement, and find hope for the road ahead. Speak encouraging words to one another. Build up hope so that you will all be together in this. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Hey guys, we're excited to share this next episode with you. We're beginning our medical diagnosis series with the award-winning author and speaker Jolene Philo. Her books include Does My Child Have PTSD? and Sharing Love Abundantly with Special Needs Families, The Five Love Languages for Parents Raising Children with Disabilities. She co-authored this book with Gary Chapman, renowned author of the Five Love Language book series. Jolene grew up in a caregiving family and raised a son with medical special needs. As a teacher, she created an inclusive classroom for children with disabilities for 25 years, so she has a lot of heartfelt insight and experience-based wisdom to share with us. Let's get started. Hi, Jolene. We are so blessed to chat with you today. Thanks for coming on the podcast with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be with you. Yeah, you bet. So, Jolene, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your family. Okay, well, I wanted to start way back in childhood. I was actually raised in a caregiving family. My father was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was two and lived in our home until, well, I was graduated and married, but he lived in our home and mom cared for him until 1983 when he went into a nursing home and was there until his death in 1997. So our entire childhood was caregiving. So I have that perspective. And then in 1982, our first child was born. And we learned shortly after his birth that he had a life-threatening condition where his esophagus was not correctly um, connected and he had to be flown off for surgery about a thousand miles away. And in the course of five, the first five years of his life, he had about seven surgeries and hundreds of doctor visits and tests and procedures. And then another surgery at age 15, he had no other issues, uh, nothing developmental or any other physical mobility or any kind of issues that way. Um, His sister was born in 1985, so they're six years apart. Uh, That's partly because it took us so long to even be able to think about having another child after that first one. And our son is 40 now, our daughter is 34. We live multi-generationally with our daughter and son-in-law and their two children on purpose. We help with their kids now. They're going to help us as we get older. Um, and so that's kind of my, my family. Oh, and I should mention too, that my mother is still living and I'm kind of one of her primary caregivers. She's in a long-term care facility, but I'm in that end of caregiving now. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, you mentioned that time in life when your, your son was diagnosed. Do you want to share a little bit about what, you know, that was like, what was going on for your family during that time? Well, we had no idea that this was going to happen. And we lived in a very remote part of South Dakota. Uh, And so we were 90 miles from the hospital where our son was born. And the first 58 miles of that were gravel. So um, when we got to the hospital, he was born relatively quickly, a little after midnight. Um, And then in the morning, the doctor came in and said he was having trouble breathing, which my husband had noted through the night. And they needed to transfer him from 
the Spearfish Hospital to the Rapid City Hospital, which is a more regional one, to uh, come up with a diagnosis. And uh, my husband went to take a shower with a, an acquaintance because we were starting to see, oh, this could be a little different than what we thought. Um, and the doctor called and I was wheeled out to the main nurse's station because there were no phones in in bedrooms at the hospital and there were no cell phones. Uh, and so in front of all of the nursing staff, I received the news that our son had this condition. And the doctor said, the good news is it's uh, 92% curable, you know, survivable. The bad news is we can only do it in Omaha or uh, Denver. Where do you want him sent? Wow. And well, that wasn't the only place, but the closest to us. And I was like, can I wait till my husband's back? You know, I, I'd like to talk to him. No, the doctor said you need to choose now because the sooner he's on his way, the less chance of complications. So, you know, in my mind, I had grown up in Iowa. In my mind, I'm thinking, well, Omaha is a lot closer to my parents than Denver is. So let's send him to Omaha. And that was a wonderful decision because, you know, you just need so much support. So he was flown off and had surgery before he was a day old. Um, we caught up with him a couple of days later and, you know, we're, we're in Omaha with him for about two and a half weeks till he was released from NICU. He really did well at first until the complications started about two months later. Mm. Mm, that's quite a story. And, you know, <laughs> right after childbirth, all this takes place. So how did the, you know, both you and your husband um, relate with that diagnosis and come to grips with it? Well, he did a lot better than I did. Um, my husband is a man of few words, which gives me all the time I want to talk. And I have lots of words. So um, he really had a, a, a faith and we were both Christians at the time, but we were pretty young Christians. So my husband said when we heard that, you know, Alan was going to be life flighted off even further than Rapid City off to Omaha, we just prayed for him. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't say anything. I just cried the whole time. And every time one of the nurses came in to check on me or they kept bringing me the little packs of lotion and stuff because everybody wanted to help. They knew our baby was gone. And one of them would come in. I just start crying again, you know, because they were all trying to be so kind and you just can hardly can hardly stand it. And over the months as his um, had, as the complications um, continued, it really took me a long time to get to the point of just being able to say, you know, because this was very life threatening. And there were times where I was, feeding my son and he quit breathing and, you know, Ugh. and then I had to breastfeed for a year because he was allergic to everything else and there wasn't enough breast milk and there weren't any, you know, milk banks like there are now. So I finally had to come to grips and it was like, God just finally said to me, well, Jolene, if he dies, what, what's, what's so terrible about that? And I was like, well, he wouldn't be here with us anymore. And, and, and God's like, but what do you know about me? And so it took me through that, that, well, your son will be in heaven. And I'm thinking, oh, and we would miss puberty and we would miss, you know, all the rebellion. Why am I so upset with that? And we would have the assurance <laughs> that he was with Jesus without having to, you know, having to make his way there himself. And, and that just calmed me. And it, I still didn't handle everything well, but I had that assurance that, you know, our son was in good hands and we could trust God with his life and his death. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting where your brain goes, isn't it? 
I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I so relate to that as a mom. I know Eric relates to it as a dad. It is just, you know, and, but that peace of God that rushes in when you're mm-hmm. in the middle of it is amazing and really yeah. is something that is, you know, beyond our comprehension and, and so, so wonderful. You know, how you mentioned all of the medical issues, you know, all of the stays at the hospital. How did you guys handle the stress of that, of the medical emergencies and the hospital stays and Yeah, we got better at it. The nice thing was the little town where we lived, which only had 92 people. And I taught school in the little town in there. It was a school of like three teachers for grades K to eight. Um, And so everybody was very close to us. And they did so much for us. They raised money. They would clean. You know, the mothers, if I had to take off um, to the doctor, one of the moms would come in and substitute so, and my husband never got docked any, um, any sick days uh, where he worked because they were just, they were just like, it's okay. Um, so that helped us. And then people would come in and clean our house and that really helped us. The hardest part was um, our son's condition, which is called tracheal esophageal fistula. Um, now it's called esophageal atresia slash tracheal esophageal fistula. Um, it's like one in every three to 4,000 children have this condition. And so there just weren't very many cases. And we had more than one doctor say to us, including our son's primary pediatrician when he was little, if I ever have another child with this diagnosis, I'm going to refer the parents to you because you know more about it than I do. Wow. That's not reassuring when you're 26 and you have no idea what you're doing. And he meant it very sincerely. Um, But I think that was the hardest thing, just like trying, trying to figure out what to do next, because even the doctors, I mean, we, if we wanted a pediatric uh, gastrointestinal doctor, we had to go all the way to Omaha to meet with that person you know, because they just, there were adult ones in Rapid City where we did a lot of our work. And the one we worked with loved Alan dearly, but would have to get on the phone and talk to the people in Omaha. So finally, when our son was three, we moved to Iowa where we could be closer to more medical facilities um, and, and found those people. But that was the hardest thing, just negotiating something with a rare condition that a lot of um, medical people didn't know a lot about. And then when you find the ones that do, you're just like, oh my gosh, (laughs) this is wonderful. Yeah. What a relief. Mm -hmm. So having challenges with your uh, child, especially so early on, can just really have an impact, I know, on family dynamics. And you just shared how, you know, you had to move, uh, relocate in order to be closer to uh, medical facilities. So can you maybe elaborate how that... um, how you guys worked through that family dynamic. And then later on, as you had a daughter as well, you know, working in uh, with your daughter's needs and, and uh, just kind of merging all those needs in your family and how you did that. Mm-hmm. Well, having grown up in Iowa, my family was very pro getting us back to Iowa. Uh, my husband was raised in, in Alaska. So that really wasn't an option because there wasn't going to be as good a care up there as what we could get in Iowa. So um, I was a teacher. My husband was a social worker at the time, but he didn't want to do that anymore. So when you're a teacher, 
you have to start looking for jobs in the spring as you know contracts are signed or not signed. And in Iowa in 1985, jobs were advertised in the state, the biggest paper in the state, the Des Moines Register in the classifieds. And every Sunday, schools would submit them. So my mom would call me every Sunday afternoon and she would read me the ads out of the Des Moines Register any uh, for any jobs that were like within an hour of a major medical center in Iowa. And so then I just started applying for them. And um, we didn't know how we were going to sell our little house in a town of 92 people. And somebody came up to us. We hadn't mentioned that we were going to move at all. Um, and somebody came up and said, if you ever want to sell your house, we'll buy it. Oh, so wow. our house was sold. Then we got I got a job in central Iowa near the Des Moines area. Um, and we just moved then knowing that my husband would find a job somewhere. And he found a job at a packing plant at first. And after being in social work and feeling like he was hitting his head against the wall, he liked just seeing those hams roll down the line. He knew how many he processed yes. at the end of the day. Yes. But eventually he decided when we were out in South Dakota, he had then become an EMT. They had a real rigorous program for that. And we knew that one of us needed a little medical training out there and it wasn't going to be me. <laughs> because I'm just like, all you know, not into any blood or anything like that. So he had the EMT training and that created in him a desire to become a nurse. And a few years after we moved to Iowa and he was working at this packing plant, they announced they were going to close it. And anyone who stayed until the plant closed would get two years of retraining money. Wow. And unemployment. So he received and, and he could get a two year nursing degree at the community college in the town where we lived. So he his school was paid for his books, daycare for our kids um, and and then unemployment during that time. So it was just like we had no doubt that that's what he was supposed to do. And then he was able to get a job in the, a regional hospital just 15 minutes from us where he worked for 31 years. He just retired last summer. So in that way, the relocating, we just knew it was where we were supposed to be. You know, God gave us that grace of I'm opening the doors and I'm shutting others. Just, just go through, go where you see the light shining. So we did. And then our daughter was born um, when our son was six and uh, there were enough years between them and our son's health was quite stable by that time. And he was becoming a kindergartner. So we didn't have a lot to worry about until at age 15, he needed a final surgery down in Kansas City, about four hours from us. Um, and so that was the real tricky time, trying to get everything worked out for that. Um, and I, I was a third grade teacher at that time. And I had to be down with Alan at the hospital for his surgery. It was He had a long recovery time. And so I missed my own daughter's third grade Christmas program. And it just killed me. You know, here I'd had all these, taken all these other kids through theirs, but I couldn't even be there for my daughters. Now I knew the music teacher. She was a colleague. They videotaped everything. My daughter didn't really care. She was fine. <laughs> she got to stay with grandma and then she got to stay with some other friends who treated her like royalty. So she was pretty happy. I would say our bigger issues started when our son hit... Um, young adulthood around getting close to graduation. And then she was mm, just getting ready for middle school. And that's when we really started seeing um, behaviors from him that weren't diagnosed too much later as post-traumatic stress disorder. 
And I think that affected her then and continues to affect her now uh, in the way she views her relationship with with her brother. And they have a good relationship now. But, um, you know, when you've got somebody who's dealt with undiagnosed PTSD for a lot of years, um, that makes it hard to maintain those relationships. Yeah. And there's probably a lot of questions there as to where's this behavior coming from? What's the what's the reasoning for it? And when you don't have a diagnosis, right. that compounds it. Absolutely. You know, you wrote a book called, Does My Child Have PTSD? About your experience with PTSD. Do you want to share a little bit about that sure. with us? Yeah, um, I I wrote the book. Um, by then, I had been, I'd written two other books. Um, and I, I left teaching in 2003 to start writing. And it was always the stuff about disability and special needs that would sell, especially when people found out, you know, I was a daughter and uh, a mother of someone with a disability, which gave me kind of a unique skill set. And then I was a former teacher, so I could talk about it and explain it using all those skills. Um, but our son had started um, uh a pattern of running away when he hit about 18, his senior year in high school, that went through when he was 26. Um, and he, uh, what you need to know, he's, he's was, was and is an extremely intelligent and creative person. So he was able to mask a lot of this stuff through high school. Um, and we had no idea anything that was happening was that it was PTSD. I began thinking, because he seemed so angry, I began thinking there has to be a link to all this medical trauma he went through because he really hasn't had anything other traumatic in his life. You know, we our marriage was strong. He hadn't had a significant person die. We really hadn't moved that much. All the things that, that you generally think of, no issues of abuse. But I kept thinking, well, if I was a little kid and went through what he went through, that would seem to be abuse to me you know, as a child. So I kind of knew it was related to that, but it took my husband a while to get on board. But once he did, um, we understood what was, that something needed to be done and that this running was a way to find a, just to get away from whatever scared him. But he was 26 when he finally called us and asked us for help. He lived in West Virginia by then. And, um, through a series of miracles. He called the day after thank or the Monday after Thanksgiving and said, I need your help. I've got to do something about this. I can't have a job. I can't have a family I, until I figure out what's wrong. And um, through a family member who had gone to a workshop where a treatment method that was being used in Morgantown, West Virginia had been explained. And we contacted her about something and she said, maybe you should check with them. And they were a clinic that did outpatient treatment either six hours a day for one week or two weeks and had a real success rate. So uh, we're starting, we're getting ready to go pick him up where he was. And so we're talking on the phone the whole time. And my sister is also a mental health care therapist. And we told her about this place. So she checked it out. She said, oh, this sounds really good. Mm. Uh, so our son was able to fill out assessment forms online. And before we even got to him, it was about a 16 hour drive. Before we got to him, he called and he said, mom, dad, they've diagnosed me with post-traumatic stress disorder and they say they can help me. And he said, I've always thought there was something wrong with me. 
because you raised my sister and I the same and she's so stable and I'm not, but I'm not crazy. I have post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and you want to talk about feeling like your heart is broken, uh, you know, to real, at least 26 and we didn't know, but I mean, that was the first time we'd really heard of post-traumatic stress disorder caused by all that early stuff. So I was able to stay with our son during his week of treatment. Um, and I talked to a lot of the clinicians there um, during that time and got, and was like, how come nobody knows about this? Right. It, why don't we know more? And they were like, well, it's, it's here. And they gave me some stuff to read. Well, two years later, we ended up back at the clinic with my daughter's future husband. He had gone through, uh, he had seen his, his younger brother who was his claim, his, you know, best playmate die in a playground accident when our son-in-law was five and his brother was three and their family imploded. And so he'd gone through a lot of trauma and was dealing with anxiety. And I kept saying to him, why don't you get a hold of this clinic? I think you have PTSD. No, no, no. Well, finally he called me and he said, you know, I, I contacted them and filled out the paperwork just to get you off my back. <laughs> and, and they say I have PTSD and they can treat it. Now what do I do? You wow. go for treatment. So my daughter and son-in-law, they were going to get married about four months uh, post-treatment, um, had me go with them. It was during spring break when they were in college. And that time I went armed and I took questions and, you know, video and recording stuff. And I interviewed everybody there and they gave me more stuff to read. And then out of that, eventually I was able to write, does my child have PTSD? And I interviewed a lot of other parents who had received similar diagnoses. And mainly, my main, there's nothing new in it that the mental health care community doesn't know and doesn't know better than me. It's just communicated in a way that lay people like us can understand and, and, and then, you know, pursue what we need to pursue, whether it's treatment for our kids or treatment for ourselves or, you know, just I, I do a lot of work with teachers, teach uh, classes on this, on what you can do then to keep your classroom safe for your kids who've dealt with trauma. So that's kind of how the book came about. And it's written for the general market because I wanted to be able to take it into public schools and other public forums and, um, and talk to anybody because I want all children to be mentally healthy, whether or not they know Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, I can't help but think this is such a timely, you know, subject as well with all everything going back, uh, you know, our new normal uh, over the last several years. I just love how you take, you know, your experiences and the challenges that you have and, and you're sharing them with us and then have become an advocate towards this topic and to be able to go out and obviously write a book and share and speak and educate. And like you said, you know, your whole goal is to make this available for people for the best of their children. That's just a fantastic thing. We're all about advocacy and just love mm -hmm. when people are, are doing this. It's so we praise you for that. You know, one of the big challenges with, you know, any of these circumstances in life is balancing um, our time, our energies between, you know, our work, our family and self-care. Can you tell us about how you did that and managed all that during this time? Um, when our son was little, it was really hard because I was teaching full time. And um, so I had the summers off, but, you know, teaching is a hard job. And when you're teaching in a country school, you're also the music teacher and the PE teacher and the art teacher and the janitor. 
Right. And then you're, you're creating lesson plans for all the subjects in several grades. So that was really hard. Um, but we had people within that town who learned how to care for our son. So we could leave them, leave him with them now and then if we needed to. Uh, and somehow it, it just always worked out. When we moved back to Iowa, you know, my mother would care for our son and then our son and our daughter for a while in the summer so I could get a little break. Um, my husband is very easygoing and also very involved, was very involved in the raising of our kids. So I never felt like I had to do it alone. I learned a lot of skills like making freezer meals so that I didn't have to think about what we were going to eat, you know, and <laughs> I was quite almost rigid on that at a certain point. Um, Those are great though. They are. And are. It, I mean, it's like, okay, if you've got a crock pot and freezer meals, you can pretty much make it through the week. And then just <laughs> other things like where I taught my kids how to make their own oatmeal in the morning, or I would make huge batches of waffles and freeze them and they could warm up their own waffles. So by the time they were six, they were fixing their own breakfast and pretty soon their own lunches. So all I had to do was supper. And, the, and then made sure that was a really good meal with lots of leftovers, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, for a while, I had a cleaning lady. I've just picked that up again, that I'm able to have somebody clean for me. When I left teaching, I worked part-time for our church. And of course, by then, I, our daughter was at home. Our son was not. Um, and actually working part-time before going full-time into writing and speaking was excellent because I... I still had some limits, you know, so I didn't have all this day where I just didn't know what to do with it. Then I had a period in there where I'm writing, um, where I'm just like, man, this is really amazing. I, I don't have anybody to care for. I can really concentrate on this. Um, and then my mother started having memory issues, you know, and, and now we have our daughter and their kids living with us who are seven and three. Um, seven and four, excuse me. And they have their own living quarters, but it's a little different, you know, having them here because the, the grandkids, you know, assume that all the house is their house. And oh yeah. <laughs> but I have just always been able to, to make some good boundaries. I did a lot of reading on time management. I still do. And I just try to give myself some grace that, um, with especially now, now it's when can I visit my mom? How do I keep her finances going and, and all that kind of stuff that, you know, if I visit her three times a week, my brother lives in the area too. So if we can switch back and forth on who's the visitor, mom's getting a visitor every day. And I, I just have to remind myself, you know, I need time with my family here too. Honestly, I think I've always been a pretty disciplined person. I'm not very good at making up my own systems for how to keep my life going, but I recognize the ones I need when I see them. And so I'm really good at asking people, how do you do that? What, what's that? <laughs> and, and learning from them. So I think those are the main things. And then I will ask for help when I need to. I'm getting better at that. It's, it's hard to be real good at it. Oh, that is such good advice. Uh, you know, when we're looking at family, you know, what are some of the things that you and your family have learned along this journey? Um, I would say one of the main things we've learned is that it doesn't have to be perfect to be good. Yeah. Um, and that's a good thing to learn because it's never perfect. 
Um, and, and I'm kind of, I, I'm a perfectionist by nature, but I've kind of learned to just like, you know, what doesn't have to be all that clean. You know what supper doesn't have to be amazing. You know, it might be one thing, yeah. <laughs> it might not be a, you know, a, a balanced meal of all sorts of stuff. But if that one thing has everything we need in it, that's fine. Um, so, so that's probably the main thing. And then humor. My father was a very funny guy and he really didn't feel sorry for himself. You know, people came to visit him and they left being the ones that felt better. Um, instead of, I mean, he enjoyed their visits too, but I think they often went away with more humor and jokes than they came prepared to give. Um, and just seeing that in him that, you know, this is, this is the life I have. So I'm going to live it. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so great. We often go to sources of humor just mm-hmm. to live this yeah. and to survive and, and to thrive in the midst of it. And or yeah, we'll find ourselves. Oh, and laugh at ourselves all the time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, that's, I'm kind of making the switch now from nonfiction to fiction writing, yeah. mainly because, um, my uh, my memories with my son are 40 years old. And, you know, so I tell these stories and they're like, oh my gosh, you're from the dark ages. <laughs> and so it's hard for young parents going through today's modern medicine, maybe to identify with some of the things that I'm dealing with. And I'm seeing so many more couples and families like you who are generation or two closer to young parents today And so what I'm trying to do, I mean, I still speak and talk about the things I know, but I also am trying more to encourage and mentor younger couples who want to start doing this kind of thing and introducing them to people and, and, and whatever, because they're the next generation. And then I can just, I'm starting to write fiction more because, um, it's, you know, also maybe not mentally healthy for me to have to tell the hardest story of my life that was 40 years ago, over and over and over and over and over. And so it's especially to write about it anymore. So, you know, I'm moving and the fiction is just a cozy mystery series. That's just really fun. And it's set in an area like where we lived um, when our son was born. It's about a country school teacher and everything. So I think those kinds of things help too. We have to realize when it is we need a break and give ourselves um, grace to tend to our own mental health needs. Yeah, absolutely. It's just great advice. Um, you know, one of the things we always like to do as we have a guest on here is to ask them, what is one thing you'd want our listeners to, uh, hear from you that would help encourage them and bring hope for the road ahead? Um, you know, I think the main thing, and I thought about this one a long time beforehand. Um, thank you for giving me time to think on that. Um, you know, we, we are living in hard circumstances, um, as, as parents who are caring for children, you know, and none of us really expected that that was going to be, I mean, we knew we would be caring for our own children, but not all these extra complications that come with having a child with a condition of some sort. And, um, it's really easy for us to start thinking, well, this is so hard. People just need to be helping me, but, we are called, I think, and we have to work at this. We, we need to be kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in three ways, um, be kind to those who are caring for your loved one, you know, as the physical therapists or the teachers or the 
OTs and PTs and speech therapy and all those people that work with your child, be kind to them, uh, whether or not they're competent. That's, I mean, you can, you can advocate and you can um, address situations that are not where your child's needs aren't being met correctly, but we have to do it in a kind way. And then we need to develop really good relationships with the people who are very competent. Yes. Um, I, I just was talking to two of moms, the, the CNAs that work with my mother and thanking them over and over because they just do a good job with her. And she's not always easy <laughs> at this point, but they are constantly watching out for her and they know what she likes and what she doesn't. So be kind to the people who work with your loved one. Um, be kind to your family. It's really easy, you know, to, to demand a lot of our, our partners or spouses or our children or our in-laws or our parents. Um, but we have to remember that they can't do everything. They, and they shouldn't have to do everything any more than you should. Um, and they're human. And so part of that kindness is letting good enough be good enough. Mm -hmm. So if you ask them to watch your child, and they're willing to come and do it. You just kind of have to, it's good enough if the house is a mess when you come home, you still had all those hours away. It's good enough, you know, if they aren't in the pajamas you laid out. And, and we can get really picky because we know some of those things that get missed can have grave consequences later on with the kids who's, who, go, who love a routine. But we just have to remember that and be kind to them and friends and anybody else who offers to help. And then we have to be kind to ourselves and we have to allow ourselves to not be the best always. Uh, we have to be kind to ourselves and realize we need a break. Um, and we just, and we have to be kind to ourselves and um, realize that we didn't, we didn't cause what's happening to our child and that we have a lot of guilt and grief and we have to be kind and let ourselves grieve mm -hmm. um, for what we what we expected to have and the child we thought we would have and grieve all of that and all the rites of passage and missed milestones that come along with a child who has disabilities. So just, you know, as much as you can be kind. Mm -hmm. Oh, Jolene, that is so fabulous. I, we are so appreciative of you and so thankful that you came on with us today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It was a delight. Resources and contact information for today's podcast will be included in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share us with others and be sure to follow us so you won't miss an episode. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a comment or rating and connect with us on social media or on our website at hopeonthehardroad.org.